our first guest tonight um, has appeared at the salon before, um, and I mean, we were trying to work it out earlier. Um, about four years was it? Four years, somewhere during the uh, during the Olympics, um, and he was very nervous, but he did very well. And he said, "I'd love to come back." And I said, "Well, only if your novel's good." Um, and it's very good, but it's not finished. So he's going to be reading tonight from... Th this is not his novel. <laughs> These are my notes. He's going to be reading tonight from his novel as a work in progress. Um, I got bits of it last week, and I have to say, it's absolutely incredible. He sent me a covering letter um, set during the war. Um, it's heroic, I would say possibly even noble. And in the letter, he said, don't read X page if you don't want to find out what happens at the end. So I didn't read, so I don't know what's going to happen at the end. Um, but we can find out more about it tonight. Please welcome Chris Clean. Thanks. Um, it's really nice to see you all. I've really never done this, read from a work that I haven't yet finished. Uh, one of the games that I quite like playing with my publisher, who's here this evening, um, is how unfinished is the novel? <laughs> I've deliberately printed off the smallest extract I thought I could possibly get away with um, showing this evening. Um, the rest of it's done. It's in my head. She's uh, like, yeah. I figure, um, I figure I can't really lose tonight. Um, because if you love this, then that's great. It's locked. And uh, if you didn't like it, well, it was a very early draft. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> this book um, is called Everyone Brave is Forgiven. I, um, I wanted to write it uh, when I started seriously talking to my grandfather. He's 94. Um, in the Second World War, he served in Malta, uh, which was an extraordinary campaign. Um, they were held under conditions of siege for a very long time. Um, and being young men in search of fun, they made the best of it. And uh, one of the things that made me admire my grandfather eternally and forever was to learn that he and his brother officers from the Royal Artillery in Malta um, had access to a small fleet of sailing dinghies. And they used them when they had very occasional leave um, to sail in St. Paul's Bay in Malta which was where the apostle was shipwrecked. And you can still read the account in Acts and check it off, according to my grandfather, against the relevant admiralty chart. The only thing that was missing from their sailing course was uh, the little boys that they all race around. So they used floating magnetic mines that had oh, thoughtfully been provided. Uh, and apparently, the closer you went to them, the more likely you were to win the race. <laughs> um, I, I liked him a lot from that point on. Um, I also discovered that he wasn't my, my grandmother's first choice and that uh, the woman my grandmother had been intending to marry... Uh, Sorry, did you say the woman your grandmother had been intending to marry? <laughs> no, he did. I'm just yeah. checking, just checking. No, that's a more complicated story than you imagined yeah, it to be. Yeah, that's not the story it was going to be. <laughs> the, the man she intended to marry was killed by her side. And I'd never known that about her. And it made me think about the war in a different way. It made me think about... Um, the positive serendipities of war, as well as the, the tragedy of war. Um, I wanted to tell their story. Um, and being me, I started out doing biography and ended up with outrageous fiction. So um, here it is. Here's a, an extract from the, from the first chapter, if I may. 
War was declared, and Mary North put her hand up for it straight away. At 18, it didn't bother her at all that she hadn't been in a war before. London was made for beginners like her. It was a nest of young sorcerers. It was a brightening of the eastern sky. It was a city in love with beginnings. Mary was anxious to learn what her war work was to be. The war office had issued her with a map. The spot to which she was report was marked, excuse me, the spot to which she was to report was marked with an X in red ink. Mary rather hoped that the X would be painted on the ground when she got there. Having begun the day with very strong coffee, she might find it impossible not to stand on that cross and dance the Charleston. She rushed across town, orders in her hand, desperate not to miss a minute of the war, but anxious that perhaps she already had. As she ran through Trafalgar Square, waving for a taxi, the pigeons flew up before her, and their clacking wings were a thousand knives tapping against claret glasses, praying silence. Soon, the city would rise to its feet and nod to the hushed company and bid its children begin with all dispatch and solemnity the great narrative of talking its foes into silence. What was war, after all, but morale in helmets and jeeps? And what was morale, if not 100 million little conversations, the sum of which might leave men brave enough to advance? The true heart of war was small talk, in which Mary was wonderfully expert. She could not reach her start point soon enough. The morning matched her mood, without cloud or equivalence in memory. In London, under lucent skies, 10,000 young women were hurrying to their new positions, on orders from Whitehall, from chambers unknowable in the old marble heart of the beast. Mary joined gladly in the great flow of the willing. The war office had sent no further details, and this was a good sign. Her mother said they would make her a liaison or an attaché to a general's staff. All the speaking parts went to girls of good family. It was even rumoured that they needed spies, and this appealed, since it too would surely involve conversation and weighted glances and talking the enemy down. It would be a kick. And that was why she'd signed up, and she hadn't for a second imagined that she was different from anybody else. When her best friend, Hilda, had declined to volunteer, Mary had been speechless. How could anyone, given that good and bad luck were about to be issued on an unprecedented scale, given that tanks and ships and aeroplanes were currently being stuffed with the stuff, given that there was to be an imminent and unrepeatable disbursement of fate, how could anyone bear to sit this one out and play canasta? Mary flagged down a cab and showed her map to the driver. The man held it at arm's length and squinted at the crimson X. She found him unbearably slow. Number 50, Hawley Street. Yes, said Mary, as quick as you like. That's Hawley Street School, isn't it? Mary smiled. I shouldn't think so. I'm to report for war work, you see. Oh, only I don't see what else it could be around there but the school. The rest of that street's just houses. Mary opened her mouth to argue and then blushed and tugged at her gloves. Sometimes one marveled at one's own obtuseness. 
because, of course, it wasn't as if they had a glittering tower just off horse guards labelled Ministry of Wild Intrigue. <laughs> Naturally, they would have her report somewhere innocuous. Right then, she said, I expect I am to be made a schoolmistress. The man nodded. It makes sense, doesn't it? Half the schoolmasters in London must be joining up for the war, mm, said Mary. I only hope that the cane shall prove effective against the enemy's armour. The man drove them to Hawley Street with no more haste than the delivery of one more schoolmistress would merit. Mary was careful to sit in the back of the cab with the expression she imagined an ordinary young woman might wear in the circumstance. A woman for whom the taxi ride would be an unaccustomed extravagance and for whom the prospect of work as a schoolteacher would seem an intemperate thrill. She made her face suggest the kind of sincere immersion in the present moment that she imagined dairy animals must also enjoy. <laughs> or geese. Through the windows of the cab, she watched all the other young people rushing to their start positions. It was her whole generation then. Angels requisitioned from the firmament and flung down to coordinates on earth, all of them still dragging a vague scent of heaven in their slipstream. This slim ankle, that unguarded look. Now that they were all being scattered, Mary felt a solidarity she had never felt at the endless dances and parties. Then, in the glow of the chandeliers, they had all seemed so different from one another. Their circle had seemed quite equal to the Earth's equator, although, now that it was broken, she could see very well that their cultivated exoticisms had owed very little to the world outside Westminster and Pimlico. How cosy they'd all been in their nest. But war, what a shock. What a quivering inversion. But as she watched through the taxi window, she modified her expression. All the other girls were wearing a face that said, oh yes, war, well, of course, I've known for ages. And now that Mary thought about it, Perhaps she ought to have seen the badge of war in the muted colours the older women had favoured that season, in their premature mothballing of summer dresses despite the heat. If she had noticed it, she hadn't understood. Perhaps she ought to have felt the coming of war in the handshakes of men, a tautness, a quickening. But she had imagined that it was she, in her first crimson lipstick, who made them nervous. But this morning, at last, she understood the scale of it. The billboard invocations, the newspaper headlines, the vowels issuing diamantine from the lips of the wireless announcers. War was come with verbs that made men bleed. At Hawley Street, careful to stay in character, she tipped the taxi driver a quarter of what she might ordinarily have given him. This would be her first test, after all. She felt herself observed as she paid the man and stepped down from the cab and walked up to the stolid-looking school. She made sure to effect the apologetic gait that she had seen ordinary girls adopt when presenting for an interview, as if the air resented being parted, as if the ground shrieked from the wound of each footstep. Mary found the headmistress's office and introduced herself. The woman nodded, but she wouldn't look up from her desk. Avian and cardiganed and spectacles on a bath-plug chain. Mary North, said Mary again, 
investing the family name with its due significance. Yes, I heard you quite well. You were to take Kestrel class. Begin with the register. Learn their names as smartly as you can. Very good, said Mary. Have you taught before? No, said Mary, but I can't imagine there's much to it. <laughs> the headmistress fixed her with two wintry pools. Your imagination is not on the syllabus. <laughs> Mary blushed again. Forgive me. No, I've never taught before. Very well. Be firm, give no liberties, and do not underestimate the importance of the child forming his letters properly. Whole lives are blighted by crooked ascenders. Mary smiled, grateful to the woman for letting the mask slip for a second. Now, Mary only had to stay in character for a while. Once she passed this audition, the headmistress would tell Mary what she was really joining. In the meantime, the attention to detail was impressive. <laughs> Here were pots of sharpened pencils and tins of drawing pins. Here was a pile of hymn books, each one covered in a different wallpaper, just as children would really have done the job if one had tasked them with it in the first week of the new school year. The headmistress looked up. I cannot imagine what you are smirking about. Excuse me, said Mary, unable to keep the glint of communication from her eyes and slightly flustered when it wasn't returned. Kestrels, said the headmistress. Turn right down the corridor, second on the left. Entering Kestrel's classroom, Mary found 30 children falling silent at hinge-top desks. They watched her, owl-eyed, heads pivoting from the neck as she walked to the teaching desk. The children might be eight or ten years old, she supposed, although, of course, children suffered dreadfully from invisibility and required a conscious adjustment of the eye in order to be focused on at all. <laughs> Good morning, class. My name is Mary North. Good morning, Miss North. The children chanted it so perfectly, in the ageless tone exactly between deference and mockery, <laughs> that something lurched in Mary's stomach. It was all just too realistic. <laughs> all day she clung to the hope that a curtain would finally be whisked away, that the audition would give way to recruitment, and that this classroom full of moon-faced children would prove, after all, to be only the antechamber to her new life. And when the bell was rung for the end of the school day, and she finally realized that this was it, she went home rather quietly. She dashed off a single, rather plaintive telegram to the war office, wondering if there had not been some mistake. There was no mistake, of course. For every reproach that would be laid at London's door in the great disjunction to come. For all the convoys missing their escorts in fog. For all the breaches shipped with mismatched barrels. For all the lovers supplied with hearts of the wrong caliber. It was never once alleged that the great old capital did not excel at letting you know precisely where your story was to begin. Oh, it's 
so good. Um, and I've read another chapter just to make me, you know, be a little bit smug. I've read the next bit and I know just how good it gets. So it is um, written, you see. see. It is written. He's written at least two more chapters. I noticed, though, that you'd edited quite a lot as you'd gone along reading over your shoulder. I was, um, I was doing it on the train on the way here. It's exciting presenting a work in progress because you realise as you're, as you're speaking, every now and then you'll see someone yawning and you think, right, this, bit, <laughs> this, this section goes on a bit. I'll, I'll cut that out. Everyone should write like this. Um, Mary North is very excited about the war. Why is she so excited about it? I was struck by the fact that they, a lot of the people who signed up for it saw it as an unmissable um, parade ground lap. Um, a lot of people uh, never thought it would come to a to a real confrontation, and indeed, until um, quite a long way into 1940, um, the reality of the war didn't sink home um, for a lot of people at home in Britain, uh, and people didn't realise how profoundly it would change their life. I think right at the beginning, speaking with my grandfather, you know, he signed up on day one um, and was ready for anything that would be thrown at him, and and could not see any reason why one, why one wouldn't. Mm. I th and Mary, it's interesting because she's a, a girl of a certain class who's 18, um, and for her it's an opportunity to escape the kind of life that she's had. She thinks she's going to become a spy, but she becomes a teacher. For a long time, um, the war um, is just an adjunct to her, the difficult relationship she has with her mother. And she, I, I love the fact that in her mind, for a long time until the war becomes real to her, um, these enormous forces arrayed against each other across the continent um, really just serve to prove the point that she's trying to make to her own family um, about coming of age in the world. And it doesn't become real for her until it becomes horribly real. Now, she, she gets a class, um, she, and the class she's dismissed from, not revealing too much to say she doesn't make a great teacher to begin with, but she does get another class um, and that class is composed of the children who are left behind in London after the war and this is I think so interesting there are so many war novels and we just think oh we know everything about the war how are you going to find something new to say about it and and here again is another story that I had not thought of at all the children who were left behind in London who were those children why yeah. were they left behind um so so here are the things I found out here, here's why it's new um we have this image of the evacuation. I mean, everyone can call to mind these sepia-toned photographs of beautiful, predominantly blonde children in knee shorts and duffel coats. Um, they were evacuated to what um, fate they didn't know. A lot of children weren't. Something else I discovered was that at the beginning of the war, um, there were several thousand uh, black families living in London. We don't think of, um, Im of uh, black immigration um, to London happening until the Windrush post-war in 1948. Whereas, in fact, the most popular form um, of live entertainment, of live theatre, for many years, from the mid-Victorian era all the way through until post the Second World War, was, was the minstrel show, um, which at the time they called the Coon Show. It was this incredibly um, racist and insulting form of entertainment that was hugely popular in this country. We, we forget this conveniently. Now, there was a show Until, just the other night on yeah. Channel 4, I don't know how many people saw it, which was absolutely appalling, which was the black and white. They were talking about it was all right in the 70s, and one of the things <laughs> they talked about was the black and white minstrel show, and they related it back to the Kuhn shows. And there were people watching it now just kind of slack-jawed, like, how? 
how, you know, so, yeah. Exactly. So there was this enormous population of black entertainers in London in the, in the 1930s and 1940s, and their children were not evacuated because they were not welcomed in the countryside. And those um, who were evacuated were hounded out and were sent back. And this is why Mary, this high-born woman, becomes a teacher in the novel. It's so that she can meet, in a way that she never would have without the war, um, these black children who don't form part of her social circle. Um, and uh, this changes her mind about the war. And uh, some of the other characters um, are Tom and Alistair. Um, tell us about Tom, because he has a relationship with Mary, and then there's Alistair, who's his flatmate, who's a, a curator of the Tate, which is being emptied. It's a very poignant image. Um, I discovered that a lot of things were evacuated before London's children. Um, they took everything out of the Tate. You know, they, they, um, they took all of those... Um, uh, beautiful pre-Raphaelites, and they, they boxed them up in plywood cases and they sent them off in lorries to be buried down mines in Wales. You know, that's that's where the, uh, a lot of the collection of the Tate went during I the I wouldn't war. have minded if they'd not brought the pre-Raphaelites back. <laughs> I'm just going just gonna to mention that. But a, a lot of the yeah. other stuff I would have minded. <laughs> um, when I read that about Lizzie Siddons, I was like, oh, she could have stayed down there. But, but, um, but, but well, it was shocking that they'd taken yeah. so much. You know, the, art, the gallery was being emptied in order lot. of priority. Wasn't yeah. I think the Surrealists were yeah, towards the, the surrealists, end. Uh, they took the Surrealists last, you know? <laughs> they, they ended up with things that the curators could have painted themselves. <laughs> and they, um, they evacuated the zoo animals before the children. Did you know this? They, London Zoo was empty before one child was evacuated from where London. Did, where did they send them? Um, the zoo animals? Yeah, uh, like, who's going to go, I'll, I'll take two hippos? A lot, of, <laughs> a lot of them went to Whipsnade. Oh, really? You know, that and that's, some, is that how Whipsnade yeah. happened? Well, I, I, don't, no I don't know if it was there before. Hmm. But um, they, uh, they, they had no idea what violence was about to be vested upon them. They, mm. they had no idea. Uh, they didn't know whether bombing was going to start immediately. They didn't know whether it was going to be Guernica from day one. Mm. Um, so they got everything out as quickly as they could. And they quite simply didn't want um, big cats roaming around London because their, their enclosures had been damaged. So they, they, they moved the zoo animals out first. And my next scene in the book begins with... Um, Mary's school, which is about to be evacuated, their muster point is the deserted London Zoo. And that was a genuine muster point for the evacuation. So, all, I mean, as always, writing a novel, the reason we do it is because the details are much more interesting than the received view of what a period was like. And um, it's by looking at these details, about looking at who was not evacuated and what order were things evacuated from London in, that shows us the values that the society had at the time. Um, the fact that black children weren't systematically evacuated, to us, that's extremely shocking. At the time, that was not shocking at all. Mm. And uh, the reason the novel, I hope, is an interesting one is because it shows us how prevalent in our own attitudes were those values which we believe we were fighting against. Yeah, I mean, we were kind of totalized as the good guys, yeah. you know. Which um, I think we were. You know, I'm, I'm not setting out to be this iconoclastic... <laughs> novelist but I just think the details are really interesting and really informative because I think that's a, a moral journey that we're still on you know I think it started um, during the war and in the, the years following the war and I think it merits examination because the second world war is so formative in our idea of who we are as our a finest hour yeah yeah all of this was happening during what was deemed our finest hour whereas I would argue that 
the hours have got finer and finer ever since. I think we're on a, a very good journey. Um, Alistair is, um, when he's finished emptying the Tate, um, it goes off to Malta. And you mentioned your grandfather at the beginning um, being there during, during the siege of Malta. Tell us a bit more about that and what in particular his duties were while he was there. <laughs> My own grandfather, yeah, yeah. who, who, um, who makes a tangential appearance in the novel. I, my grandfather turned out to be a very capable man on closer examination. He, um, he was assigned to look after Randolph Churchill. Uh, Randolph Churchill was the brilliant, super smart, um, but rather dissipated son of the prime minister. And uh, he was conspicuously well fed um, on an <laughs> island that had been under siege for two years. He was parachuted in to recruit for what then became the SAS. Uh, and uh, Randolph Churchill hung out with a whole, with, with a literary set, actually. He hung out with Evelyn Waugh, and a lot of these people considered themselves to be commandos. And so Randolph Churchill was parachuted onto Malta in a commando outfit, which was described as fitting him like a, like a grocer's bag around a single onion. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, he had some amazing qualities as a man, but he was, he was properly built at that time. And... Uh, he, uh, my grandfather, was assigned to Randolph Churchill with the order um, to look after him and not to let him fall into enemy hands. So th think about what that means. You know, if, if the invasion of Malta had come uh, by whatever means necessary, my grandfather's job was to make sure that the prime minister's son did not become a hostage. And my grandfather was the sort of person you could give that job to, which is why he was interesting to talk to. Um, did he, he have did diaries or letters, or how did you find out? This whole project started in 2007 when um, he sat down with me and asked me to help him type up his memoirs. So he was just talking, and I was typing. You know, one of the things I can do as a novelist, possibly the only thing I can do really well, is type. <laughs> Fantastic <laughs> edit. And, uh, and so he, I just took dictation, and he told me about his war. And, uh, and then I went and got the same... Uh, debriefing from my grandmother because I was interested in hearing how she had felt about all of that. Is that where you found out about him being her second choice? Yeah, yeah. We'd Did never he been know told that? About that. Um, yeah, he, he knew, okay. but we'd never been told. Um, we'd never been told how they met either. I mean, the, uh, the mind boggles. They, were, um, uh, they met when they jumped into opposite ends of the same slit trench in a bombing raid on <laughs> Liverpool docks. Um, so my my, the, the person who was to be my grandfather from, from one side, uh, my grandmother from the other, bombs coming all around. They jumped into this trench. They were the only two people there. They were there for six hours. <laughs> we don't know what happened. My grandmother was very coy about it. And um, we just don't know, but enough transpired between them so that they decided they would write to each other. They were in Liverpool because my um, grandmother was driving ambulances there and my grandfather was about to be deployed to Malta um, on a troop ship from Liverpool docks. And so they met for six hours and then they didn't see each other again for three and a half years. So they had this correspondence by letter, they became engaged by letter, and this was something that absolutely blew my mind about the period. And this is when I really decided, right, I have to write about this time. Because they had, you know, they didn't have this high frequency, low intensity communication that we have. And we communicate endlessly with each other, really to reassure, to smooth, to, 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 to tell each other that we're loved using frequency. 
Whereas they had this extremely low frequency, high intensity communication. If you wrote a letter in 1940 and put it on a, on a ship to its destination, which it might reach, and that might be your one shot at telling someone you loved them, the letters were extraordinary. The thought that was put into them, the nuance in every word was delightful. And I, I have half of their correspondence. And it was amazing to read through. The reason I only have half of it is because the other half was sunk um, by a U-boat um, on, uh, on the ship that my grandfather came back uh, from Malta on. Um, he, he survived. The letters were lost. It was that kind of a time. And so you can do so much with the letters they wrote to each other and with the feelings they had for each other and with the faith that people had in each other. You had to believe that people would wait for you. Um, in a way that we don't have to believe now. We have daily proof. Uh, that's what I loved about, about the time. Um, when is it going to be finished slash out? Um, I think it'll be finished in two weeks. Okay. I mean, if you guys liked it, I'll... Uh, <laughs> I'll I think we liked it. it. I think we liked it, yeah. <laughs> so if they liked it, it'll be, it'll be out... Probably next year. It'll be out next yeah. year, okay. It's a hard one to ask questions on because you know nothing about it. But if you have any questions or feelings, you know, we can go a bit Quaker with this if you're moved, you want to stand up. No, 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 no. Sylvia's hand, of course, is up um, about a book she hasn't read. Sylvia, do tell. Hi. It's a question to do with the letter writing that you were talking about, which is that, you know, have, having, you know, we don't write letters so much, does that mean we've lost something or is that energy being, you know, put elsewhere into other communication? Um, I don't think we've lost the art of, of writing wonderful letters. Um, people do. One of the things I love most on the internet is reading the complaining letters that people have written. <laughs> I, I, I think we've just got better and better at it. As we have more and more um, cultural references in common, you know, everyone has an idea what someone is talking about when they go on a real rant in a letter. Um, I think we do snarky really well, much better than they ever did. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily know that we do sincerity um, as well as people did when bombs were falling on their heads in 1940. I don't think people. I don't think we do earnestness. I don't think we do passion in quite the same way. I don't think that's been lost. I think it's expressed between people but I don't think um, anyone ever needs to sit down uh, and write um, on four sheets of aerogram paper under time pressure why someone should wait for them. And that's, um, that's a beautiful thing. You know? So I, I don't think that impulse is lost, but I think we practice it less. I think they would have been sexting if they could. But, um, <laughs> anyway, Al Eleanor, question? So a question about research, and was it difficult for you also to write a period piece for the first time? Um, thanks very much. Thanks for noticing. Uh, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's the, the first time I've written um, in an era that isn't the one that I was living in at the time. Uh, I, I found it hard to stop researching it. Uh, I, I visited all of the locations, 
one of the things that you could do with my grandfather's memoir, because he was in the Royal Artillery, everywhere he was, you could check it out on Google Earth um, and look from space and see this enormous concrete signature of a big gun emplacement. You know, it's still there. There are these relics of the Second World War that are still there. And then I went to the island and I visited all of the locations. That was the first thing to do. You, you visit, I've, I visited all of the cemeteries. I, I, I checked the names of the people who died in my grandfather's narrative. Um, and I went and found their graves. And it was incredibly moving to talk about these people who'd been my grandfather's friends. And you see their grave and you think about it in a different way. And again, it, it's the details. Uh, on Malta, in the siege, uh, a lot of people died. A lot of people were killed by the bombing. And it was very hard to bury them. And the reason was that the soil is mostly rock. It's limestone with two inches of poor soil on top of it. Um, and all of the men who had to dig the graves were on starvation rations. Um, and so it's the, they're the only war graves um, from the Second World War where there are four, five, and six men in a grave because it was so hard to dig a hole in the ground when you hadn't eaten for a week. And it, it's those details that you get from from visiting a place that were important. The other big strand of research was what was it like in London in 1940? Um, and I'm never really very interested in the received narrative. I'm interested in, so what did people do on Saturday night? You know, And uh, so I, I have a friend at the BBC who managed to find loads of these minstrel shows in the BBC sound archive. So I listened to hours and hours of radio broadcasts of minstrel shows from the 1940s. And, it was so strange, you know, I would, every evening I would pretend I was in 1940 or 1939 and I would listen to what was on the radio that evening and wake up in the morning and, and respond to it. So I, I, sort of, I tried to live as much as I could in the period. Um, it was an amazing exercise. Uh, what I liked most about it was the, the register of speech, you know, the, those, those beautiful vowels that they had and uh, the way they expressed themselves, the precision um, that people used on the radio. Uh, I, I, I'm very, um, I, I have a real sort of love, I think, for the way people spoke then, and I hope that comes across in the, in the dialogue of the book. It definitely does. Um, you talked about letter writing. You did write me a letter, and I'm just going to read a tiny wee bit of the, of, of the letter that you wrote to me. Um, Chris said, I do not buy into the idea that the post-war generations have not lived up to the sacrifice of the golden generation who endured the war. Rather, I believe that the shift in attitudes towards race, sexual orientation and gender constitute a victory just as significant, if not yet as complete, as that first defeat of fascism. The hour that we live in now is surely equal to our finest, and I hope to show that it has its roots in the change of heart experienced during the war by the bravest of the golden generation. Thank you, Chris Cleave. Thanks very much. Thank you.